Today's scripture reading is from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 21 through 27. Do not fear, O soil, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, if you haven't already gotten your turkey or started baking pies, consider this your friendly reminder that Thanksgiving is just four days away. I know for some of us, it seemed like it would never come. And for other of us, we can't believe it's already November. Today is the Sunday before the Thanksgiving holiday. Now, Thanksgiving Day in the United States is not actually part of the church calendar, but it's not inappropriate that we would focus on the theme of gratitude this morning as part of our worship together. The Bible is full of Thanksgiving. In the Hebrew scriptures, we see the people of Israel offering sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise to God. In the New Testament, we read of Paul often giving thanks for the people in the churches who are working alongside him, people like the Philippians who share with him in the work of the gospel. And we have a central sacrament in the Christian church, communion, also called the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And Eucharist is a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. In the Eucharist, the body of Christ comes together to remember and to give thanks for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Giving thanks is very much a part of the Christian tradition. So while Thanksgiving Day may not be an official Christian holiday, it is fitting that as Christians, we take time to reflect on what it means to give thanks and to express our gratitude to God. 
Now, I'm sure as many of us sat around our Thanksgiving tables a year ago, we could not have imagined how different life would be this Thanksgiving. The writer G.K. Chesterton, who placed a high value on gratitude, said, the critical thing is whether one takes things for granted or takes them with gratitude. I don't think many of us are going to take much for granted this Thanksgiving. It certainly has been a year of challenges. And speaking for myself, I've been wondering what does it mean to be thankful this Thanksgiving? How do we give thanks in the midst of such trying times? In selecting the biblical text for this week's sermon, I consulted the Book of Common Prayer, which listed some readings for around the Thanksgiving holiday. And I found myself drawn to the prophet Joel, chapter two, verses 21 through 27. These verses focus on God's restoration and blessing, an apt Thanksgiving theme, but they're not without a backstory. These encouraging words are addressed to a people who had experienced an extremely tough year. It wasn't a global pandemic, but it was a different kind of plague. The first two chapters of Joel are basically all about a locust plague, and not just any locust plague. There is so much detail about what happened. We've got all kinds of locusts inflicting destruction. In chapter one, verse four, it says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Later in chapter two, the locusts are described like a powerful army in battle with the rumbling of chariots coming to destroy everything in its path. The crops are decimated, the animals have no pasture, and not surprising, the people are in anguish. We read about stories of locusts elsewhere in the Bible, so maybe it's not unfamiliar to us what Joel's talking about here. And we may tend to think that locusts are something that primarily affected the ancient world. But in fact, on top of everything else that the world has struggled with in 2020, there have been extreme locust plagues this year. This summer in Eastern Africa, and then moving to Southwest Asia and the Middle East, gargantuan masses of tens of billions of locusts have ravaged the landscape. I did a little reading about locusts. They don't teach you about locusts in seminary. And I learned a little bit more, maybe more than I ever thought I wanted to know about locusts. And you can thank me, I didn't bring any pictures to share this morning. There's actually a global locust initiative at Arizona State University where I got a lot of interesting information. So this past year, there was an upsurge in locusts due to extreme weather conditions, often going, say, from an arid, a very arid climate to a lot of moisture. And so these massive swarms grow and devour practically everything in sight. One swarm in northern Kenya was reported to be 25 miles long and 37 miles wide. That's big enough to blanket a whole 
city. Apparently, locusts don't really bite people, which is good, but their impact on human flourishing is significant. In Kenya, where they haven't seen an infestation for about 70 years, they estimate 50 to 80% of the crops are destroyed. Based on what I learned about locust plagues, I can see why God's people were in such distress and why in the midst of this catastrophe brought about by the locust plague, we see Joel in chapter two, verses 12 through 17, calling the people together. He assembles them to fast, to call out to God and ask God to respond to their need. The situation was dire and the people of God asked God to spare them from total destruction. Then in verse 18, the tone shifts from the crisis described in the early part of the book, from God's people feeling threatened by destruction to the promise of God's presence and provision. Here, Joel brings a message of God's salvation telling them that God has already begun to act, that God will restore the damage. And so in this morning's text, starting at verse 21, we read that the damage from the plague is reversed. And it's reversed step by step. First, the land, do not fear, O soil. Then the animals, do not fear, you animals of the field. And then the inhabitants of Jerusalem, O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. This way of speaking is a liturgical pattern of thanksgiving found in scripture. It's similar to a hymn of thanksgiving, like we might see in the Psalms. Psalm 117, which says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples for great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This progression from soil to animals to humans also demonstrates the fullness of the restoration. The people are under extreme duress. There has been sustained drought and agricultural disaster. In verse 23, it says, God has given the rain. These words show how certain God's promise is. God has given it. And it highlights the complete restoration of agricultural bounty that comes from renewed rainfall. God's salvation will not only come to the people, but also to the land and to all its creatures. God will bring abundance to the people with rain and harvest. And in verse 27, God's restoration includes a reaffirmation of God's relationship to the community. You shall know I am in the midst of Israel. This provides reassurance that God's restoration includes God's very presence, that the people will know God is with them. After the account of devastation in chapter one, these verses in Joel two are meant to be an encouragement to God's people who suffered through the locust plague. God who seemed to abandon the people to their disaster has intervened 
to restore them. The damage is undone. Restoration includes good crops, threshing floors full of grain, overflowing vats of wine and oil, food for the hungry. We see that the blessing of a full stomach is not an end in itself, but a sign of God's bountiful blessing. The prophet Joel may be addressing God's people in the ancient world, but I think his words speak to us as well. The Bible is no stranger to catastrophe, to loss, to grief, but neither are we. So many are in a season of devastation right now and are longing for deliverance. Joel encourages God's people by announcing a new reality. And God's blessing includes a movement toward anticipation of this new reality. These verses are promises. What was a mere hope in the earlier parts of the book of Joel are now realized. There has been a catastrophe, and now the world is restored. God has changed calamity into blessings. The text asserts the goodness and mercy of God toward the people in all times of crisis, great or small. And the promise of God's fulfillment can be seen in the description, right? The fruitful trees, abundant rain, overflowing vats. These fulfillments are real tokens of God's goodness. They are reminders in grim times that God can do what seems impossible. The biblical scholar Ellen Davis says, the prophetic books of the Bible, like Joel, can bring us to despair. But she reminds us that none of them ends without a picture of the people of God returning to a healthy relationship with God and this picture of the land being fruitful and productive. At the heart of the book of Joel is a presentation of God as the source of hope, who by God's own promise upholds the people in their darkest hour. There is a promise of restoration, from curse to blessing, from divine absence to presence, from sorrow to joy. God will provide and life will be okay, more than okay, it will be abundant and good. And in return, the community is called to praise God. Praise and thanksgiving go hand in hand. And this brings us back to gratitude. Gratitude, it's a worthy virtue, but sometimes it seems to be oriented more toward what has already happened. We focus on the blessings of God in the past, what God has done. But God's people are called to make God's blessings not only part of their past, but of their present and their future. Gratitude can provide direction for the future. God's fulfillments, even small or seemingly limited, anticipate greater and boundless fulfillments. Thanksgiving is not a conclusion, but a promise. During the months of the pandemic, there's been a fair bit of attention given to gratitude. Psychologists are telling us that it is important 
to practice being grateful during this crisis. That gratitude has psychological and physical benefits. I discovered that the Mayo Clinic has a program on gratitude. Uh, it's intended to help improve mental health through daily journaling. Similarly, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, is recommending a gratitude journal, logging three good things each day as a way to address nursing burnout during the pandemic and to help nurses improve their well-being and resilience. It turns out that scientific research shows that expressing gratitude can enhance our well-being and that of others, whether we articulate gratitude in written form or spoken to others or even to ourselves. But it seems a particular challenge, at least to me, to give thanks in the midst of calamity, in the middle of a locust plague or a global pandemic. But these verses in Joel 2 proclaim to the soil, to the animals, to the people of God, that God has done great things, that the fields will be green again and the trees will bear fruit. There will be abundance. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with wine and oil. God assures the people that they will once again eat in plenty. These words aren't simply about the future of God's people, they express a present reality because God's rescue has already begun. Thanksgiving is an opportunity to cultivate gratitude, to nourish the soil, water the crops, deepen the roots of gratitude that will strengthen our faith and inspire our anticipation for what God will yet do. Small acts of gratitude are like planting seeds rooting our hope in God's promises of blessing and presence. I think Advent is a good season for this cultivation of gratitude, not just on Thanksgiving Day. Advent captures this tension of God's promises that have been fulfilled, but also the expectation of greater fulfillment. God promises to be present and demonstrated this in coming to dwell among us in the person of Jesus. In this first coming of Christ as Mary's child, it's, it was an anticipation of the second coming when Christ will return to bring complete restoration to God's people and to all creation. Jesus has come and is coming. In a year of catastrophe, we look to God's blessings. This isn't a looking to the horizon where nothing appears. This is an expectation rooted in gratitude for what God has already done and is doing. Do not fear, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. May this Thanksgiving holiday and the coming weeks of Advent be a time for us to cultivate gratitude for each of us to deepen our roots and acknowledge God's provision, even while we anticipate greater blessings with the assurance of God's complete restoration. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.